I'm Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Briefing. It's the latest news headlines to your headphones this Friday, 9 October. Today on The Briefing, Jan, Fran and I take a deep dive on fast fashion. Is it destroying the planet? And if it is, what can we do about it? We're consuming clothes at an unsustainable rate and we're consuming them like never before because we're basically buying them to throw them away. Yes, that is coming up just a little bit later in the show and also a challenge for Jam. Let's see if she accepts it. Yeah. Anyway, before that, the big news stories of the day. Look, nobody likes Zooms and Skypes and Google Hangouts, and it turns out that neither does the US President. Uh, Donald Trump says that no, he will not be part of the second presidential debate with Joe Biden if it ends up online. I'm not going to waste my time on a virtual debate. That's not what debating's all about. You sit behind a computer and do a debate. It's ridiculous. And then they cut you off whenever they want. And uh, they're they're trying to protect Biden. Everybody is. Yep, that there was the US president talking about what a debate really is and isn't. Um, He does seem to be the expert on that. That was his first interview since his coronavirus diagnosis. He insists that he's doing well and that he's, uh, well, that he's dominated the virus, but no, still no debate. Jan, you'll also be shocked to learn that Trump has been back on Twitter labelling his diagnosis a blessing from God. He's also crediting his bounce back from the potentially killer virus to a drug called Regeneron, which has barely been used outside medical trials for the general public. But we have medicines right now, and I call them a cure. I went into the hospital a week ago. I was very sick, and I took this medicine, and it was incredible. It was incredible. I I could have walked out the following day sooner. And we're going to make that and others that are similar to it, almost identical, we're going to make them available. Things that would take two, three, four years are taking a matter of weeks or even sooner than that. And that's because of me. Yes, it is all because of him. I'm sure there's no scientists or doctors or anyone else involved. It's all the president. Meanwhile, the one and only vice presidential debate between Democratic candidate Kamala Harris and Republican Mike Pence is done and dusted, but the star of the show somehow ended up being a fly, a, a literal, actual fly that landed on Mike Pence's head and just sat there for approximately two minutes. That stole the show. Very sadly, Jan, we don't actually have any audio of the famous fly no. drop-in, but we do have this. Let's talk about respecting the American people. You respect the American people when you have the courage to be a leader speaking of those things that you may not want people to hear, but they need to hear so they can protect themselves. The American people have had to sacrifice far too much because of the incompetence of this administration. This debate was comparatively, yeah, I guess I want to say normal um, compared to last week's first presidential debate between (laughs) Donald Trump and Joe Biden, right? It just was like, oh, this is what debates are like. It was definitely more policy heavy. The vice presidential candidates covered everything from coronavirus, the economy and taxes to foreign policy, climate change and NAFTA. And yeah, Jan, that's right. Nobody shouted over the top of one another. Shock horror. Anyone who's had to deal with me during 2020 will understand when I say this. The early childhood teaching workforce are legitimate heroes. Yes, and childcare was front and centre last night when opposition leader Anthony Albanese delivered his budget reply, which is, it's sort of like his alternative list of funding priorities. Uh, An opposition retort 
to the budget, if you will. He opened his speech with a focus on childcare and keeping women in the workforce during the recession, which was a bit of a contrast with the government. Women have suffered most during the pandemic, but are reduced to a footnote. The best the government can offer is that they can drive on a road. And if you're over 35, you have certainly been left behind. And on childcare, Jan, he actually made some really big commitments. At the moment, government subsidises most families' childcare up to a certain cap each year. The cap has been blamed for mums not working full-time because it's just too expensive, it's not worth it for them. Mm. But under the Labor plan, that cap will be scrapped, reducing childcare bills by up to $2,900 each year for families. Yeah, childcare is a massive barrier for women's full participation in the workforce, for sure. Um, Labor also called for more investment in local manufacturing and renewable energy. And independent Senator Jackie Lambie went off in the Senate yesterday with a very impassioned speech outlining why she refused to support the government's plan to increase the cost of some university degrees. I refuse to be the vote that tells poor kids out there, no matter how gifted, no matter how determined you are, dream a little cheaper because you're never going to make it, because you can't afford it. I won't take that off them. I won't be a part of that. She certainly had some really lovely and kind of compelling words to say. You could you could hear the emotion in yeah. Lambie's voice, Jan, couldn't you? Yeah. This is something she's experienced herself growing up poor. The laws passed Parliament yesterday with the help of crossbenchers from the Centre Alliance. The laws will more than double the cost of many humanities and arts courses, but will cut costs to nursing, teaching, agriculture and IT degrees. Yeah, now the Education Minister, Dan Tien, has said that the changes are really designed to give students cost incentives to study subjects that will prepare them for fields where jobs are needed. Uh, But Jackie Lambie says the changes are just something that will privilege rich kids over poorer kids. The members of the Morrison government have no idea what it's like to fight tooth and nail to get the opportunities you deserve, to not have everything passed to you on a silver platter by mummy and daddy. That's the reality of most Australians. Up next, Jan and I are talking fast fashion. items of clothing do you have in your wardrobe? Think about that for a second. How many t-shirts, dresses, gym shorts, slacks, uniforms, undies, scarves, whatever it is, how many do you actually have sitting in your cupboard right now? The average Australian buys 27 kilograms of textiles every year, but that's not even the crazy part. The crazy part is that we throw away 23 of those kilos. So that means 85% of what we buy ends up in landfill. Australians are actually the second largest consumers of new textiles right after the Americans. We love... Fast fashion. Fast fashion. Fast fashion. Fast fashion. Fast fashion. Fast fashion is the rise of cheap, trendy, affordable and accessible clothes. It's the $5 t-shirt at Kmart. It's the $50 summer dress you buy online from a brand that you've never actually heard of. Yeah, and look, hey, we've all been there. It's stores like Zara, Topshop, H&M, Cotton On, Uniqlo. You know, these places that turn catwalk trends into bargain buys 
in really just a matter of weeks. Yeah, the way we consume clothes today would be entirely alien to our parents and our grandparents. Previous generations mostly made their own clothes and those they did buy were a few pieces of quality. Pieces that were made to last, made to be passed on to the next generation. Yeah, it seems like such a different way of operating. And look, it might seem that fashion choices now are they're a good thing for the consumer, right? But they're not such a good thing for the planet. And that is what we are going to get stuck into in today's briefing topic. Just how much is fast fashion destroying the planet and what can we do about it? Claire Press is a sustainable fashion expert and presenter of the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. Claire, just how bad is this problem? What's the scale of our fashion crisis? Well, the scale is enormous. I mean, we've pretty much doubled global garment production in the past 15 years. We've gone from 50 billion garments produced globally to something like 100 billion. But I say something like, because we kind of don't know. Some people think it's like 150 billion. I mean, it's crackers. We haven't got twice as many people on the planet. We're consuming clothes at an unsustainable rate and we're consuming them like never before because we're basically buying them to throw them away. Why is this happening? Well, I mean, whenever I share those stats, and it can be hard to get your head around stats, but here's another one, for example. We're now holding onto our clothes for much less time. We're wearing them on average maybe five, maybe seven times before we're putting them in the bin or passing them on to donations. But whenever I talk about this stuff, I think people can kind of disassociate and think, well... I don't know, I'm not into fashion maybe, or fashion is the preserve of the whole sexist thing, like silly young women who want to buy something new on the weekend pre-COVID to wear out or something Mm. like that. But in fact, the story of our clothes and textiles is universal. It's about our consumerist society. When I talk about fashion, I'm actually talking about men's wear, work wear, kids wear, your school uniforms, textiles in general. So When we talk about fashion's excesses, we're really just talking about our excesses. We can't stop buying things and fashion is the poster child. But I think that fashion also has another kind of responsibility in that it's very showy and shiny. It's a great marketing thing. And so, I don't know, you look at Instagram, you look at red carpets or Hollywood, et cetera, et cetera, and you feel this pressure to have something new. Can you talk us through the life cycle of a T-shirt? Like if I buy a T-shirt from somewhere... Can you talk us through the life cycle of that T-shirt, where it starts and where it's most likely to end? The problem is no. And that is the kind of curly issue around sustainability and fashion. And I say no, because it really depends on where the T-shirt, which brand the T-shirt comes from, right? So from an unsustainable brand, from a fast fashion brand, shall we say, without naming a particular name, because I haven't got a, you know, the stats in front of me as to which T-shirt came from where. But if your T-shirt was made in Bangladesh, for example, by a cheap brand, a high street brand, something like less than 4% of what you pay on the ticket went to the garment worker. And garment workers in Bangladesh, there's millions of them, mostly women, mostly not paid a a living wage, have pretty much been exploited to sew that t-shirt. If you want to go back to the field, cotton is really thirsty. Um, We often hear that, but it just means that Mm. it's really water intensive. And if if it's not organic, it's potentially trashed the environment in which it's been grown. Again, you can't generalize because it depends. But your t-shirt could be an environmental nightmare that's exploited a young woman who can't afford to feed her kids in order to make it. And that is the fact. And maybe if you're paying very little for that t-shirt, you're going to wear it a few times and then throw it away. So it becomes part of the problem of the mountains of textile waste that local councils are dealing with. 
I mean, it's kind of a grim picture, right? What do you think? Claire, I'm recording this from lockdown in Melbourne, which means I can't leave the house to go to the studio. So I'm sitting in my wardrobe looking at my clothes with an enormous level of guilt. I know one of the things that usually makes me feel better, though, is that when I'm finished with something, I donate it to one of those charity bins. Am I doing the right thing? Yeah, I mean, not donating it is bad, right? So don't put it in the wheelie bin, please. Like, that's bad. But donating is also not necessarily good because a lot of people are using charity shops as basically trash cans themselves. So, you know, giving them stained or torn or crappy old clothes that you wouldn't give your friend. So I always think when you're considering what to donate, think you might be tired of it. So you don't want it anymore. Fine. Or you've grown out of it or whatever. But would you feel proud or not ashamed maybe to give it to a family member or a friend? And if the answer is, oh, God, now I'd be cringing, don't give it to a charity shop because they then have to pay to dispose of it. And, you know, lots of clothes are not good enough that are donated to be sold in the stores. And so they have to either export them to countries that are less picky, which is another whole thing, or they actually have to pay to dump them. Okay, so what should we be doing then with our clothes to reduce wastage? This is a bit I love. I know, Jan, that you've been doing um, your bit for this for what? I I've, I feel like you've been doing this for a long time where yeah, you haven't been buying years. new clothes, right? Yeah. Um, one of the things we can do, for example, is what you're doing, which is buy secondhand and try and reduce our clothing footprint, if you like, by using what's already in existence, buying vintage, etc. That's one little fix. But I think the big fix here is a much more kind of heady one, like something in your head, which is about connection. I spend a lot of time thinking about this and trying to get people to get on board with it. If we were more connected with the stories behind our stuff, Mm. we would act differently. It's actually our responsibility as well as brands, as well as regulators, right? So if we cared more, if we just took a, a bit more time to think, how did that thing, whatever it is, a fashion thing or some other thing you wanted from a shop, if we just connected more to the stories behind how that thing was made, I think it would change the game. And I think we, we actually would then take more joy in it as well. Yeah. So I think it's about understanding stories and asking more questions and just being more active citizens. And that, you know, that's a bit of an ask, but that's how we're going to be more sustainable. It's not about just passing the buck to someone else. Jan, Claire mentioned that you've made your own commitment to stop buying new clothes mm. and you've been doing it for a whopping two years now. Has it been hard? Well, look, Jam, am I a hero Yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, I stopped buying new clothes um, in early 2019 because I was hosting a daily television show and the wardrobe just kept piling up. And I thought to myself, where is all of this stuff going to end up? It's going to end up in landfill. No one's going to wear it anymore. And I'd always been an op shop shopper, but I thought to myself, I wonder if I can just try not buying new clothes for a year. And has it been difficult? No, it has been so much fun. It's sort of allowed a lot of creativity for me and also just made me think a lot harder about clothes and where they come from and where they end up. So how do you do it at a, at a really practical yeah. level? How does it work? Are you, are you always in op shops? Where else do you buy from? Okay, so here are the parameters of no new clothes, right? You can buy secondhand, you can buy vintage, you can rent because that just goes straight back into the market. You can borrow, you can steal, but only from family members that are related to you by blood. Please do not go doing that from stores. You can tailor, so you can tailor any clothes that you might already have in your wardrobe. I've shortened a lot of dresses. I've tightened a lot of bits and pieces. Um, Basically, anything that is going to make your wardrobe circular. Now, I just want to say very quickly, 
it's fun and I love it and it's been great. It's not as easy as it sounds. If you're a bigger person, you're going to have problems finding stuff at op shops. If you're someone who works in the corporate world, again, you might have problems finding stuff at op shops. Tailoring costs a lot of money. You know, if you're tailoring really expensive items, it does cost a lot of money to get them taken in or taken out. So there is a barrier to entry there. If you don't live close to op shops and secondhand shops, again, that might feel like a bit of a barrier. So there's all these kind of slight barriers around it, but they're the general parameters. Okay. I've got to say, I don't think you're a hero, but I am impressed. I am impressed. And I reckon people could try it just a little bit. You don't have to do it with your whole wardrobe. You can just sort of start by testing the waters. That's the consumer side of things, Jan. But what about the supply side? How can we encourage the people who make our clothes to do better too? Lucy Ann Tonti is a consultant who helps some of Europe's biggest fashion brands actually become more sustainable. Lucienne, welcome. We've heard how polluting the fashion industry can be. So how do you actually do the work that you do? How do you make brands more sustainable? What we try to do is make steps towards minimising the impact of the clothes. The most important thing on, from my perspective is that the clothes biodegrade at their end of life. So we're not mm. shipping them all off to landfill because we know that's a huge problem. So in my consultancy, we place an emphasis on natural fibres And other people will tell you that natural fibres are problematic, and sometimes they are, but we are looking to fibres like hemp and linen as kind of like the top end of the scale because those are crops that grow with very minimal pesticides and they're crops that regenerate. They don't use that much water and they do this thing where they actually sequester carbon and put it back into the soil. And then from there, we also look at wool because wool is an amazing fibre as well to grow if it's farmed correctly and without any cruelty practices. Is this something that you've noticed happening more and more in the industry with designers and producers? Are people thinking about sustainability a bit more? And if not, should they be? Yeah, it has been at the forefront of the conversation for the last couple of years. But sustainability advocates have been going on about this you know, for decades. So that everybody's a little bit late to the party, but definitely there's a rising level of consciousness among consumers. And so the fashion industry is responding to that. And there's Mm -hmm. also high level criticism of the rate of production and consumption in the industry and the stats on how much of the carbon budget fashion could be using by, say, the year 2030 or 2050. That was Lucianne Tonti. She's one of those inside the fashion industry who is thinking about sustainability. Yeah, and I would say a growing number of people um, in the fashion industry doing that as well. But one thing I wanted to do just before we wrap up is not just say to you guys listening to try no new clothes for a month, but jam a challenge for you Oh, God. Uh, Yeah. And it's here. We're broadcasting to the world. No new clothes for the rest of the year. Do you think you can do that? See, the problem is, Jan, normally I wouldn't be able to do that, but I'm a highly competitive person. So (laughs) 9 October to 31 December, you're on, babe. You're on. I'm on. I'm going to check in with you. Jamila Rizvi, you heard it here first. Not buying any new clothes for the rest of the year. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Jan Fran, that's about all we've got time for. Everyone, have a great weekend and wash your hands. A podcast one production.